Hello, this is Annie Catherine, host of the multi-award-winning podcast, Soulful Series. Thank you for joining me as I chat with award-winning authors who have written a memoir or nonfiction motivational book and have an uplifting message to share. Hi, everyone. I am here today with Mary T. Wagner. She is a former newspaper and magazine journalist who changed careers at 40, going to law school and becoming a criminal prosecutor. However, she never could step away from the written word entirely, and inevitably, the joy of writing drew her back to the keyboard. Her slice-of-life essays have often been described as both inspiring and empowering and have won numerous national and regional awards. Wagner's life experiences include the defining watershed of motherhood and stints as a Girl Scout troop leader, truck stop waitress, office temp, judicial clerk, and radio talk show host. She counts both wearing spiked heels and learning to use a cordless drill and chainsaw among her late blooming discoveries and would be hard pressed to, do, to, to surrender either her favorite stilettos or her power tools. Thank you, Mary, for joining me today to talk about your book, When the Shoe Fits. Well, thank you so much for having me on your show. It's, it's a delight to be able to connect with people, yes, especially in this pandemic time. I agree with you. I agree with you. And I love this cover and I had recreated it on my Instagram. And I think that got the best likes ever. Everybody just loved this cover and the recreation of it. I just, I was blown away. I laughed and I laughed and I shared it as far as I could too, because nobody's ever done that before. Yeah. And it was a delightful moment. Yeah. Well, wait till you see, I have another one coming up and I think you'll enjoy that too, because I laughed when I took it. So wait for okay. it. <laughs> so go ahead and tell us why you wrote this hilarious, wonderful book of essays. Well, um, and I tend to go on and on and on with stories. So gong me at any particular time. But this, <clears throat> starting off, this book is actually a best of collection of my favorite essays from the previous books that I have written and essays that I've written for other places that didn't make it into the books. And I just wanted to do a roundup of my favorite things. But the fact that these essays exist at all is actually a testament to friendship and the faith that other people can put in you. Um, I'll try to make this short. I never grew up thinking I was going to be a writer. I was a bookworm. I read my way through childhood, I think in response to some traumatic things and some really dysfunctional things, but I was not a person who kept a diary or had an interior life or anything. So I finally stumbled into college and a year later stumbled into journalism and went, ha, I'm home. This is a way to make, make sense out of a chaotic world. And I ran with it. I was a newspaper reporter. Then I got married and became a stay-at-home mom and did magazine writing. <clears throat> and uh, eventually, several years into that, uh, a few things happened. My marriage was falling apart. And I had this horrific accident where I broke my back uh, jumping a horse over a fence. And I came out of all of that with the determination that I was going to go to law school. So at that point, I really thought that my life had divided into a whole new chapter. You know, there was the writing part, which I was just delighted with, but here I have the law part and I had the perfect job and it was a lot of fun. And I just didn't think that I was gonna be writing again. But 
this is where the friendship thing comes in. Uh, another female attorney at the courthouse where I worked and her husband, who was a blogger and a stay-home dad, loved my Christmas newsletters. And they knew that I had been a writer and they kept pushing me to start a blog. And they worked on me for months, literally. Mary, Mary, you should do this. You need to get back to writing. Let Jay help you. Let him, you know, he'll walk you through it. And I'm going, oh, no, 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 no. Which is what I often say at first. <clears throat> when new stuff comes up. But I finally did take them up on it. And I, I started this blog running with stilettos uh, with a single essay, the one about the Christmas axe bloody cookies. And that was the first thing I ever wrote. And it went on for years and it was so liberating. It was such a joyful experience because for the first time in my life, I was writing just for myself. I was writing from the heart. I didn't have an editor to please. I didn't have a format. I didn't have a deadline. I didn't have a particular word count or a grade level, reading level or anything like that. This was just a flourishing. And that's where all of these essays came from. And that's how they ended up in these books. And now in this, you know, there's the good stuff, there's the joy, there's the happy, there's the silly, there's the tragic. Um, but it all came about it would not have existed had not these friends said, Mary, we really believe you should do this. And would you please give it a try? And so I did. That's wonderful. And I, I agree when you write for yourself and you're not trying to please anybody, you just find so much joy in purpose and maybe some healing along the way. And oh, then yes. you realize that other people are resonating with what you wrote and they say the best writers don't write for an audience. They they write for themselves and mm -hmm. it just takes off. People mm -hmm. just love it. And that's what I got from your essays. I, I just loved every single one of them. And I resonate with you so much because, well, we have a lot in common. Number one, we both went to Marquette University for journalism, which yes. I was blown away by that. And... Um, I never did go into the newspaper business, but I did think about becoming a lawyer and I, I never followed that route either, but I feel like we have similar personalities or similar, similar interests and um, yeah, and, and actually one of them too is shoes. So I wanted to ask you about your whole shoe theme and your essays and the titles. All righty. Well, <clears throat> Um, the shoes were something new to me also. I don't think I put on a pair of spike heels until I was maybe 48 years old. Honest to God, this is into my second career. I did not grow up feeling like a girly girl. Um, you know, once again, I was a bookworm. You know, I'm kind of plain. I went to Catholic grade school and high school for two years where all it was was plaid uniforms and <laughs> there's nothing sexy about that. Then I went to college and I lived in jeans and sneakers for the most part. And then I got married and chasing four children, you wear sneakers and jeans and sweats a lot. And um, then finally I, you know, did the whole transition, the immediate transition to law and you're expected to suit up. And so I would wear shoes with sensible heels. Yeah. Something that was maybe like an inch, inch and a half tall. And uh, one day, one of my kids had a medical crisis going on. And so I was basically in Madison, shuttling her back and forth to her classes um, to, you know, save her strength and, and killing time. In the meantime, sitting at Starbucks, working on uh, a case actually for the state Supreme Court. And I had a eureka moment and I thought, oh, wow, 
I, I'm going to win this case on this. And, you know, the state of Wisconsin should pay me a bonus, but they're not going to. So I'm going to go shoe shopping. So I did. And I tried on sensible brown shoes, but then I also tried on this really sexy pair of three inch spike heel sling back faux alligator ones that I was teetering in. And I, I thought, you know, they look good, but I don't know if I can pull this off. So I asked the sales lady to hold on to them, went back to pick up my daughter who had been voted best dressed in high school for at least two years and said, honey, would you take a look at these shoes with me? So we went back to the mall, tried on the shoes and her assessment was, mom, they look good. You should buy them. So I did. And I wore them to work the next day. And um, one of my coworkers who shall remain nameless looked at them and blushed and said, oh my God, Mary, those are the sexiest shoes I've ever seen. And I, it was like one of those eureka light bulb moments mm -hmm. that I go, I think I'm onto something here. And I started adopting this shoe style as kind of my signature along with the suit or the blazer or whatever. And uh, I found they made me taller. They made me feel more powerful because really you could use them as weapons in a pinch. <laughs> um, they drew attention. Uh, and anytime you have, it, it all adds up to having an advantage and it also added up to feeling girly, still in a position of power. And so when I started the blog, I took a bag of my high heels down to the lakefront, laid belly down on a, a nearly frozen um, shoreline because this was like the day before New Year's Eve <laughs> and took pictures of my favorite shoes and then picked the the best one for the cover of my first book. And then I just kept going with that theme on all of my books until I wrote the children's book about the kitten and that had to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that kittens and heels, uh, my neck go together so well. Yes, but all the, it was an empowerment thing, really, um, in a lot of ways. I, I actually love that about your books and about your title and this whole theme of shoes. I wore heels in my 20s and 30s, but I've hung them up in my 40s. I have not worn them. And part of me is like, oh, I'm kind of too old to wear them or my back's gonna hurt if I wear those today. So, but you're inspiring me. I might have to- You are not too old to do this. Um, I'm gonna go back to my first book, which was Running With Stilettos, the same title and the same shoes as the blog. And when I was collecting this, this set of essays, I first tried to find a, a traditional publisher, but uh, got a few rejections from agents and publishers, all of whom said, you know, great writing, we don't know you, we can't sell this, good luck. And so after a few of those, I was impatient. I've been through two near-death experiences, one of which was breaking my back. The other one was an auto accident in the middle of a blizzard involving a semi. And I am really acutely attuned to the fact that life is short and, you know, do something sooner rather than later. And so I just jumped into the self-publishing thing. But one of the other things I thought was at this point, I was 50 years old. And I thought, you know, it's only going to be a few more years that I can possibly wear these things and anybody's going to take me seriously. And so I might as well get this thing on the shelf while I'm still wearing these shoes. Well, you know what? I was still wearing spike heels into court until the day I retired. I was still a formidable force. So yeah. I don't think that's a hindrance at all. 
Yeah. Yeah. I, you know what? You're inspiring me. I'm going to go, I think I'm going to go buy a pair of shoes <laughs> and I'm going to email you them. <laughs> oh, please do. It'll make, it'll make my day and it may inspire me to go out shopping. I gave away about a dozen pair of my spike heels when I retired, but I have at least another 10 left because wow. I'm sentimentally attached and I wear them every once in a while to public yeah. appearances. Yeah, that's great. Go for it. Yes, <laughs> I'm going to now. <laughs> so talk about um, your, your breaking your back and your switch into being a lawyer in, in midlife. I think that's very interesting to, to hear about. Um, okay, well, I would say I was on that horse in a riding lesson going over a fence because at this point I was already... Uh, in the throes of a marriage that was disintegrating and I was trying to reclaim my original identity, my, my sense of spirit and I would guess bravery that sort of gets a little washed away when you're a soccer mom with four people that you're running herd on, which is delightful, but you just don't get to take the chances that you did before. So in this, I'd already come to the point realizing that, you know, I don't think I'm liking these as much as I thought I would. For one thing, I'm afraid of heights. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe I would rather be riding on the flat, but I continued, you know, with, with one more lesson thinking, but I'm still learning more about my riding ability. I'm still learning more about my sense of balance, all that stuff. And so the, um, the instructor had me go over a fence higher and faster than I had before. And when I went over that fence, I felt my balance was not right and I nearly lost a stirrup. And I came around and I said, I didn't do that right. I wanna practice on the smaller one until I understand what I did wrong. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of back and forth. Ultimately, she's saying, no, 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 you're doing fine. You should trust me, I'm a teacher. You know, Take my word for it, take that fence another time. And I'm going, I'm not sure about this. I don't really feel good about this. But finally I thought, you know, I have trust issues. I know I have trust issues. I am paying this woman for her expertise. I am just for once going to shut up and I'm gonna do what the expert tells me to do. And I took that fence and the same thing happened, but this time I did lose the stirrup. And as the horse rounded the curve, centrifugal force took me out of the saddle and I hit the ground. Imagine if you took a Barbie doll by the ankles and just slammed her into a table. Oof. Yeah. So um, I came out of that with more of a, a, a commitment to listening to my inner voice. Yes. And my inner voice had a year earlier when somebody I hadn't seen in a long time and who had become a lawyer had suggested that I would you know, I should try this that I'd be really good at. And it made me remember that I had actually been thinking about this as an undergrad when I was in journalism school. Yeah. So I decided after I got out of that three months in the body cast, um, and it was painful, and it was a long recuperation, and I'm still haunted by, by, you know, weakness in my back and pain issues. But I came out of that determined that I was going to uh, listen to that inner voice more strongly. And this one was saying, you know, why don't you go back to that fork in the road? This time you're going to take the road that you didn't take the first time. Yeah. And we're going to see what happens. And so I did. Yeah. And to my great surprise, I did really well because I had no idea that I was going to. I didn't think at first that I had the brains for it, but apparently I did. Yeah. And I mean, your essays really... Um, show that that was the right path for you to take. And that is also inspirational that you changed course um, in midlife. I mean, how old were you when you went back? 
I was 40 years old when I started law school. I like there were kids I could have been if I was a teenage mother, I could have been their mom. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and I remember sitting during orientation and I I think I write about this in the book. I remember sitting there in one of these gigantic classes during orientation where the, the professor is at the front of the classroom and he's lecturing on the Socratic method. And he starts out with who owns the moon. And so the debate goes on from there. And I had this cloud, this black cloud of depression just land on me, like, like a cloak, just settling on my shoulders and dragging me down thinking, what the hell am I doing? I am, I have four kids at home to take care of. I was one of the first part-time students that they lit in, which was the only way that I could do this. Mm-hmm. Um, but I have four kids to take care of. My marriage is falling apart and I'm competing with kids who literally can live at the law school. They can read their law books with their breakfast cereal. They can argue about law in the bars at night and they can study law all weekend. Mm-hmm. I am doomed, I can't possibly do this. But as I was driving home the 33 miles from the law school to my house, I thought, well, you borrowed the money already, you might as well give it a try, you're in. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, and I did surprisingly well that yeah. first semester. I don't think I ever did quite as well as I did the first semester, but I kind of made my mark the first semester. Yeah, you were, you were determined and you had wisdom on your side. And I'm sure when those, those kids are that young. They're not studying as much as much as you think they are. <laughs> I was young yeah. once. I wasn't doing all. There was a lot of parties in between. <laughs> well, you know, the other thing is, and this is another thing that we share besides the journalism, as we're both mothers, and that brings you a resilience yes. and a um, an ability to think on your feet and and change course and adapt and to figure out what's needed in a hurry. And that was a skill that. I mean, I would, people say, oh my God, how did you go to law school with four children? And I I would say, you know, actually it was easier than being a soccer mom because I could sit in one spot and study between classes and I would sit with my feet up and I'd have a candy bar and I'd have a diet Coke and I could read a book for two hours and nobody interrupted me and nobody was hungry and nobody was bleeding or nobody was hurt or needed to get to their piano lesson. And seriously, it was relaxing. Yeah. Compared to, you know, the fast pace of four active children. Yes. Yeah. I agree. It's like you needed something else than being a stay at home mom. Uh, You were, you were so frazzled. Uh, Well, I was, (laughs) and I only have one child, so I can imagine, you know, you're, you're, you're taking them here, there, you're dealing with all this, but if you could just focus on something that you want to do, then you're, you just take the time and you do it because you're, because you're not doing anything with your kids. And you're like, all right, I have this time. I am going to focus. That is exactly what all of my freelance writing was before, before I had the accident and went to school again. Yeah. Yeah. So what I find interesting too, is this whole idea of learning to use power (laughs) tools. Now talk about something that, (laughs) I haven't done yet, and maybe there will be some time in my life, but talk about learning power tools and why you do, why you do that. Ah, well, the first, okay, so I grab it, I've, I've graduated from a cordless drill to a chainsaw the size of a bread box, but it still could cut off your foot, to I, my, my peak, my piece to raise the stance was actually using a chop saw positioned on the back of a pickup truck to cut bricks for my patio, which was nothing that I set out to do. I thought I was going to be serving potato salad that day. But anyway, the the whole power tool thing is, um, 
I think I have to, to back up just a step and say my marriage was very much a traditional marriage where I did the bulk of all of the stuff with the kids and made the cookies and uh, made the meals and did the nurturing and, and ran the kids back and forth for a lot of lessons. And my husband did the manly stuff on the outside of the house, anything involving a hammer or nails or measuring or building. You know, he and his dad built our garage. Um, they put in the driveway in front of the house, uh, that concrete kind of, I can never tell the difference between concrete and cement. But anyway, that was the way that it was. I, you know, my toolkit was a woman's secret uh, weapon, which is nail polish remover. That was, you know, that was all I knew in terms of how to solve household problems. Yeah. But here we are, we're divorced and I had horses at that time and a fence had broken and I needed to fix it. And I could not ask my ex to come over and fix it because he was floating on a houseboat up in the boundary waters of Minnesota with my kids. And I was home alone and I wasn't dating anybody long enough to say, would you come over here and help do this major project for me? Um, so I drove to Menards and I got a cordless drill and I had to learn how to use it that day because if the horse got out into this fresh pasture, she would eat herself to death literally. It was that sort of an imperative. It was, there are no options. You have to learn how to use this thing. So I got that job done and learned that this was a handy tool to have around. And, and it, oh God, the feeling of empowerment. Once again, back to the ex-husband and you know me in the division of labor. When we were married, he had installed a bunch of cabinets in our utility room. Mm -hmm. He didn't put knobs on them. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, that's okay. They open without knobs. Yeah. But at some point I thought, you know, I have a cordless drill, I can do this. And so I went to the store and I picked out some knobs and I brought them back and I measured and I drilled and I put the knobs on it. I was just so proud of myself. <laughs> yes, so you should be. <laughs> it, and it was, you know, it was empowerment, but it was also independence and just um, the ability to, to do something new. Um, the chainsaw came about because there were dead trees that occasionally would fall down or brush that needed to be cleared. And especially if a, a small tree comes down across the driveway and you have to get out to work, um, yeah. you might have to do something with it. So that was, that was another escalation. And then the chop saw thing that is directly related to the guy that I was dating then for seven years who was helping put in the um, patio uh, that I had been wanting for many, many, many years, but it turned out that he was busy measuring, so I was busy cutting bricks. <laughs> it's oh. like, what? And that, let me tell you, that really makes you feel like Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, you know, I there's been a few times in my life where, where I put together like a, a little bookshelf or a book cart, and I always feel, wow, I actually yes. get that. It is yes. empowering. Um, I have... <laughs> I have not tried the power tools because I am not very graceful. So I would worry I would um, it really injure myself. But I, I, I feel that in you that, you know, your confidence grows. You, you may have never done it had you not been pushed to do it. And that's very true. Yeah. Yeah. And well, I, and I haven't done it because I haven't been pushed to do it, but we can do hard things mm -hmm. and that's the whole lesson in all of this. <laughs> so I so another thing that you and I have in common is um, the online dating. So I did it in my early 30s, and I actually met my husband um, on Match.com. So I've I 
we won't go into all my experiences, but I had some weird stuff, some weird dates. And it was just, yeah, I could probably write a whole book on that. But I wanted to hear about your experience. It it just seemed so different than other people's. Like it's so heartwarming. Some of the things you talked about, some of the dates and the people you met. So do you want to talk a little bit about your online dating and like when you started that, like how old you were? Let's see. Um, it was as soon as the ink was dry on the divorce papers is what it was. So I'm thinking I was 40, I was 40 something, 47, perhaps. I would have to do the math and I'm, I just can't do that right yeah, now. That's fine. <laughs> The point is, oh. is that you were almost 50. <laughs> yes, I was almost 50, you know, back yeah. at the same time that I was starting to wear spike heels uh, yeah. with authority. So <laughs> I, um, I embraced this, you know, I've been married for 25 years, and I had not had a long dating history before I got married. And so this was all new to me. So I signed up for several dating services. And the bottom line is I went out with 36 guys in a year. Oh, well, you yeah. tracked them. I didn't even, I did not track the guys I dated. <laughs> uh, it, it, <laughs> most of them were, you know, one and done coffee dates. Yeah. You know, you follow the rules. You meet in a, a, a well-populated place like a coffee shop or something mm -hmm. like that. And uh, you have your hour of conversation and you always have some place, you know, that you have to get to. So you, <laughs> if you're not having a good time. You don't have to linger. Um, so there were a few guys that I went out with uh, longer than that, um, I had, <laughs> there was the, I call it the 60 second rule. And then the, uh, curse of the third date, the 60 second rule is when you each size each other up and you get a general sense of, is this possible or not? And the curse of the third date is when you've had a couple of good times, but then something, some sort of bells go off in one person's or the others, not necessarily me, sometimes the other person and you just part company. Yeah. So there was 36, uh, 36 guys in that year. And I even went out with a guy that I met on a dating show on a radio station. Mm -hmm. And, you know, his friends thought he looked like Jack Kennedy. One of my friends thought that at the time I looked like Annette Benning. So we were quite the celebrity couple for our one date. Nice. And we had gone out to a fancy brunch and then we had gone to an indoor garden. And we're, you know, if you had seen the two of us sitting there, you know, hand in hand, canoodling in conversation, walking amidst the flowers, you would have gone, oh, I want to be like them. Yeah. But anyway, um, <laughs> I met him at the same time that I met the guy that I would then be with for the next seven years. And so it was like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm going to go in this direction. So it was, it was an education for me into like the things that I liked and the things that I thought I liked. And then I would find, oh, I guess I don't like that so much, but maybe I like that a little bit more, or maybe this is more important to me. So it was an incredible journey of self-discovery. And then I met the guy that I was with for the next seven years, which there were times that were radiantly wonderful. And there were times that were absolutely dreadful. And finally, at the end of seven years, it was done. But I still carry positive things forward from that relationship. Um, I will do something and I'll realize I didn't know how to do that before I met him. Yes. Or I didn't appreciate this thing before I met him. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, you know, there are things that I'm going to take to my grave that I'll never tell my children or anybody else in terms of experiences. But I think we all have moments like that. And, uh, but it was, it was a great learning experience for me. And I'm seriously thinking of kind of getting back out there. It's been a while. Ooh, nice. 
Yeah. No, I love that whole notion of self-discovery because you're trying to, you're figuring out yourself as you're dating and you're meeting men and you're thinking, well, I don't like this. I like this. And your true authentic self is coming out because of your, I'm going to say age, but maybe because you, I'm going to say age, because when you're younger and when this happened to me too, you're kind of like trying to fit yourself with somebody and you might yes. lose yourself in the process of, okay, well, this person likes to do this. So I'm going to pretend to like it, or it's just, it's a whole different ball game when you're older and you come and you fill your own shoes and you're like, no, I, this is who I am. I'm coming at this authentically. And I, this person isn't for me or this person is for me. So I really, I, I think that is amazing. And I, I hope that the younger generation, you know, looks at that and is always comes to a relationship with their authentic self. And I, right now, I just feel like that comes with experience though. So I, I think you're very right on that. Um, yeah. yeah, it's trying to fit somebody else's expectations never ends well. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So, and, yeah. and the more you can just focus on, you know, that two square feet of, of what you're standing on and who you are, yeah. um, the better off you'll be. Yes, yes, exactly. So, okay, so let's talk about chocolate. You love chocolate. I want to hear about this. <laughs> oh, I have been a chocolate addict for forever. Um, it got me through law school with really good grades, as a matter of fact. Um, my breakfast of champions before I would go in for exams was a mug of hot chocolate, a double chocolate glazed donut, and a cheese danish. <laughs> and then I would walk into the exam room with, say, a bag of M&Ms and a big Hershey bar <clears throat> to get me through writing the exam. Um, so yes, I'm, I wish it made me thin. It doesn't. But it's, uh, it's, for me, it's uh, a soul rejuvenating thing. It is brain food. It is delicious. And in Sheboygan, we have some really remarkable chocolatiers up here. Mm -hmm. So there's no shortage of temptation. Yes. And if we ever get together in person, I'm going to bring you down some chocolate covered raspberries, which are like sin on a plate. And you'll know what I'm talking about. Yes. 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 Oh my gosh, it sounds delightful. Okay, and I'm going to show you something that my daughter picked out for me for Valentine's Day, and it is uh -huh. too pretty to eat, and I think you're going to love it. So it is a, oh. <laughs> it's a shoe, a heel, a stiletto oh, oh, made out of chocolate. Isn't that beautiful? That is absolutely beautiful. And oh. it, it was at one point filled with truffles in there, but oh, okay. I ate those, but I just... I can't eat that. I don't want to eat it. <laughs> I don't know how long that would last in my house, but I understand the struggle you're going through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just too pretty to eat. I think eventually I'm going to have to, cause it's going to melt all over the place. <laughs> I don't know. There must be some way that you can get it like preserved in glycerin or something. It is beautiful. I know. I know. So I, so I just had to bring up the chocolate. Okay. Now the other thing we have in common besides chocolate, online dating, schools, writing, is okay i literally shove receipts and papers and things that are 10 years old into my drawers my husband i drive my husband nuts but you talk about this in an essay and i was like yes i do the exact same thing 
I hang on and this, this is going to drive my children crazy someday when I, when I pass on, which hopefully won't be for a long time. And I, every once in a while, try to take a stab at what they call that, that craze a few years ago, the Swedish death cleaning, you know, where you get rid of your clutter so that your kids don't have to deal with it. Cause dear God, I have dealt with so much of it from my parents, but I hang on to things. Uh, Yes. I hang on to paper just because I'm too busy to get it organized, but I hang on to things. And Marie Kondo would just have her head explode (laughs) in dealing with me because she says, you know, you should only keep things that bring you joy. But the thing is, a lot of the things that I save have kept me, they're full of joy. They are memories of when my children were small or they're mementos of a good relationship or they're a trinket from a wonderful trip that I took. And when I see these things, it just makes me feel good again. So maybe I have too much of an abundance of joy. <laughs> That's why I just find it so hard to get rid of stuff. No, I, am, I, feel I, I don't pare down at all. Yeah. And I love the part where you held on to something and you are like a little bag. It was pretty. And you're like, I, I'm going to use this someday. I'm going to find the perfect home for perfect use for it. And I do the exact same thing. I'm like, I, I'm going to use this at some point. And you did. I don't remember how long it was, but it was a very 10 years. 10. It was 10 years. It was yeah. a flannel bag from a it was the cover for a pair of flannel pajamas that I'd given one of my kids and it was a little flannel drawstring bag and it sat in a drawer for 10 years and then I finally threw it out I'm never going to use that and like within a day I found the use for it so I dived back into the garbage can picked it back out put my binoculars in it and said ha (laughs) yes and it is possible and it's so funny because my husband will throw something away and that I haven't used in a long time. He'll be like, oh, she'll never know. Literally, I'm not kidding you. That day or the day after, I'll be looking for it and I'll be like, where is that? And then I I have gone out in the trash and gotten it. And and now he knows he, he doesn't do it anymore because he feels like I have this sixth sense, and I probably do, that, yeah. he, that he threw it out. And then all of a sudden I... <laughs> I need it. And it should be six years later that I had haven't even used it. Yes, uh, I, I know. And I have friends who would like to see me, you know, get more organized and send me the occasional article about decluttering and oh, it's so easy, this, that, and the other. And then I'll have a moment like find, you know, finding a use for that bag that I held on to for 10 years and I just got but 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 <laughs> I was right, at least on this one. the other thing I loved okay now this I think you talked about how this was the essay that started it all and it is amazing about the tradition of making cookies with your or well you sat back and relaxed and they made made the cookies I want to share that with us because that is just a classic story okay it is called the tale of the christmas axes and it has actually gotten a fair amount of play it uh, it ran in the milwaukee journal uh like a year or two later as a christmas story as an offbeat christmas story but here it is it's the uh the christmas right after the divorce and so i am overcompensating i've got the fireplace crackling i've got the house cleaned i've got garland i've got the nine foot christmas tree all decorated i've got christmas stockings and i'm absolutely exhausted and so the kids the high schoolers and the two of them are in college two of them are in high school and they're all over for you know hey let's make some cookies and visit and i was just pooped so i just handed them off the rolling pin and i said here you guys do that i'm going to sit back and you, you just take it over and so 
I'm sitting in the living room watching the fire. I'm listening to the sounds of joy and making cookies and all that sort of stuff. And they got out all of the Christmas cookie ornaments that have been in the family for years. And the one ornament that I had never brought out for them, uh, they put to use. That was a an axe. Okay. Um, I don't, you know, why on earth as a mother would I not provide my children with an axe-shaped cookie cutter? So many reasons. But anyway, they found this and they put it to use and they decorated it like they were bloody axes and they had angels with bloody hands and stuff like that. <clears throat> and I didn't see this until they left. I walked into the kitchen and oh my God, I just doubled over with laughter. I thought it was so funny. So that has become a Christmas tradition with, you know, the bloody axe Christmas cookies. Now the tradition goes forward with the grandchildren. So my okay. oldest grandchildren are eight and six. Yeah. And they are already, you know, steeped in the, the myth, the mythology of the Christmas X <laughs> cookies. And so, yeah, we have to do that at Christmas, but it's, we're taking it to a new level now. At Halloween, they were at my house for the weekend and it's like, oh, let's make cookies with grandma. So we're making ghosts and we're making jack-o'-lanterns and things like that. But in there, we also made a couple of freehand, you know, we just cut around a, a hand, several of those, and we decorated them like severed hands. And so if you can imagine, you know, blood along the edge of the wrist and blood yeah. on the fingernails, and it, yeah. it was epic, weird, but epic. No, that, well, that seems to be okay for Halloween, I think. <laughs> it's really fun. It's funny for Christmas, though. Who would have thought? Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's a family tradition. And, and the other tradition that I'm starting with the grandkids is I like to be a grandma sandwich because I love reading books to them. Mm -hmm. And as they grow older, you know, you might want to be a little more mature, keep your distance or whatever. So I've lately started saying, you know, let's make me a grandma sandwich. And so I'll be sitting there with a book in my lap and I've got one kid under one arm and one kid under the other arm. And it's, oh, it's joyous and it's a tradition for me. Yeah, that is great. I, I love that. Oh my gosh, that is so great. Okay, so we're wrapping up here and I want to know, what do you want people to take away from When the Shoe Fits, your essays? Wow, um, there's so many things in there. There's, you know, the, the tragic and the love and the family and the funny and the chocolate and the shoes. But <laughs> I would, I would say be open to the, okay, there's a few things. Be open to possibilities. Mm -hmm. um, just because you've done things one way for a long time doesn't mean you can't look in a different direction. Be willing to take chances and be willing to follow your instincts. Yes. Because boy, following my instinct, not following my instincts landed me in a body cast and I have <laughs> never not listened to them since then. Yes. And if something isn't working, in your life, it's okay to change it. Yeah. Doesn't have to be a drastic change, doesn't have to be an immediate change, but you get to think about what's not working and why it's not working. And last, if you have friends who believe in you and see better things in you than you see yourself, allow yourself to believe them. Don't listen to those, do what you can to shut down the little voices in your head or from the outside that are saying, you can't do that mm -hmm. um, because those can be crippling. Yes. So turn away from the voices that say you can't and embrace the love that other people bring to you that tell you that you can. Yeah. So that probably would be a good, good set of them. 
That's wonderful advice. It, it truly is. Now, where can someone find your book? Okay, so you can find all of my books, including, and here's a little plug, my oh. children's books based on Finnegan the Circus Cat. It's a, a chapter book series for young readers, but you can find everything on Amazon. Mm -hmm. But if you have a local bookstore that you would like to support and you don't mind waiting a little bit long, longer to get one of my books, order the books through your local bookstore. Mm -hmm. I will make a little less money. They will make some money. Everybody's happy. Uh, you get to support a business that you love. Yeah. So either way, Amazon or your local bookstore. Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Mary, for joining me this morning. It was a hoot. <laughs> you so this has funny. been delightful. Thank you so much for inviting me. Yes. Thank you so much. All right. Well, good luck with everything. And I hope to meet you in person sometime and bring chocolate. <laughs> yes, let's do it. We don't live too far from each other. That's true. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Soulful Series is hosted by me, Annie Catherine. Soulful Series is a Vienna Studios production produced by Vanessa Ferlano. Music by Vanessa Ferlano. Catch you next time. Part of the ACAST community.